0: Good morning, y'all. That was, thank you for somebody having some enthusiasm. <clears throat> anyway, I, my name's Ed griffin Hagen. I'm one of our pastors here at my church. I want to welcome y'all again. Richard welcomed you. I'm thankful that y'all are here. I want to say hello to the folks that are watching online, and I hope you all had a good New Year, had a good week of maybe a little bit of r and R, a a little bit of football, maybe a lot of football. Um, we are looking forward to... And super excited about what's going to go on in the life of our church in 2019. Good stuff is going on a little more about that hopefully next week. But today we're starting a series, uh, a new series, and we'll be in this for four or five weeks, called The Gospel Makes Freakish Demands. And I want to preface this a little bit, and I'm going to probably mention this a few times throughout this morning, but I want to preface it with... Something Paul said in Romans, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm ashamed of the false gospels that are sort of propagated around the United States, around the world probably. Today, a lot of false gospel, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're going to hear that uh, today. I want to preface this also with there is probably going to be some offensiveness in, in, in today's message, but you know what? The cross was offensive. The cross was offensive. The gospel is foolishness to the lost. And so I'm just warning you. I'm probably going to say some things that are controversial, but here's what I want you to do. Hang with me. Don't take things out of context. Hang with me till the end of this message, and we'll we'll wrap it up kind of neatly. But I want to give us <coughs> today a, a th- kind of a 35,000-foot view flyover of, of what the next four or five weeks are going to be. Um, I want us to get 2019 off on the right start. First of all, we need to always, always, always be a praying church. We need to always commit everything we do to prayer. And so let, it, let me start us off with that this morning. If y'all will just kind of pray with me. Lord, I thank you so much for the, the, the opportunity, the privilege to lead this church But at the same time, Lord, I tremble at the thought of leading this church because often I feel uh, crazy inadequate to the task. Lord, I feel often inadequate to the task of leading my own family, much less uh, leading this church. Lord, I pray that you would give, uh, even this morning, that you'd give me the grace to communicate your truths from your word in, in a meaningful way. Lord, I pray that you would speak nothing but truth. Give me the grace to communicate in a way that honors you. Give the people here uh, the ability, the grace to hear your word in a way that would honor you. And Lord, just give us the grace to hear your word and to obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So look, hopefully y'all know me well enough by now, I hope, to know that I love this book. I love it. I love the scriptures. I love teaching it, I love preaching it, I love reading it, I love studying it, and I heard somebody say this week that a passion to preach without a burden to study is a desire to perform, and I don't want to perform, I don't ever want to perform, I just want to preach the truth, God's truth from this scripture, Um, I want to preach that truth in a meaningful way, obviously. But I, it I don't want none of us that are on the stage. None of this needs to be a performance. It needs to be the truth, God's truth. <clears throat> and so then I, I ask myself, like all the time. With all of that said, do I really believe the text? Do I really believe the scripture? Do I really believe that it is a hundred percent infallible? That it is a hundred percent inerrant? Do I really do I really believe that? And do you really believe that? Because if if you do, the, the reality is, is this book makes some really freakish demands uh, on us together and on our church. There are some crazy implications that happen when you really believe this book. Luke fourteen thirty three. The book of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke is the third book in the New Testament, one of the four kind of gospel accounts of Christ's life. Chapter fourteen, verse thirty three is going to sort of be a, uh, a theme verse for us through this series, and this is Jesus speaking in verse thirty three chapter fourteen, and he says in the same way, and if you don't have a worship God, I want you to get a worship God. if you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll get one for you but in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. that's what Jesus said, and that's a freakish demand it 's a freakish expectation everything he doesn't say some things he doesn't say every other thing he doesn't say every third thing 20 percent. he says everything and maybe you think that he's just talking about stuff because we hear that a lot he's not I don't believe he's just talking about stuff because if we back up a few verses to verse 26 he says if any and again it's words of Christ if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children his brothers and sisters and yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple. He's talking about everything. And he says, you can't call yourself a follower of his if you're not willing to give up all of those things. And that's a kind of radical. That's kind of a radical thing to say. And so here we get this, this snapshot of the demands that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes. And it is give up everything, even if you want to be in consideration to be one of his disciples. And that's what this whole passage, Luke 14, is about, which we're going to walk through and kind of see that in the coming weeks. And so the question, do I really believe this book? It comes to us in, in, in like three buckets. And I want to introduce those three buckets to us this morning. Bucket number one is this. Do I, do, do I believe, do we really believe what the book says about being a Christ follower? Back up to Luke chapter 9, a few chapters uh, earlier. Do, do we really believe what the book says about what it means to follow Christ? So in Luke chapter 9, there, uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry, there's crowds, kind of large crowds following Him. And here's what happens beginning in verse 57. We're going to look at six verses. I think it's six verses in Luke 9. Verse 57 says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, odd kind of response. The dude says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. It's kind of an odd response. He goes on in verse 59, he said to another man, you got three little conversations that take place in this passage. So the second one, verse fifty nine, he said to another man, Follow me, but the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, third third conversation. Uh, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go say go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And here's what, what, it, what it sounds like to me. It sounds like Jesus is trying to talk these folks out of following him. That's what it sounds like. If you, if you read those three little short conversations. And it seems like in churches today that the mindset is to do whatever it takes. To say whatever it takes. To print whatever it takes to get people to come in the door to get heinies in the seats. And I want heinies in the seats, don't get me wrong. I do. But I don't want to do whatever it takes to get them in the seats because a lot of times in today's world, in the United States, it's, a, it's falsehoods that's, that get them in the seats. It's deception that gets them in the seats. It's a false gospel that gets people in, in the seats. It's a sales job. And it, I don't want to be a salesman. I don't want us to be salesmen. I, I don't want it, that cheapens grace. And you all know, the grace was bought at a high price. It wasn't cheap. And all of that falseness cheapens what happened on the cross, and we're not going to do it. We're just not going to do it. And Jesus said, but let the dead bury their own dead. Don't even go back and say goodbye to your family. These are the kind of things that I wonder sometimes. My mind goes in crazy places. And I wonder sometimes if his guys, if the disciples would hear Jesus say stuff like this um, and their jaws would just hit the ground because it would freak them out <clears throat> because when crowds would, would get big around Jesus, he would say things like pluck an eyeball out. Richard taught about that last week. Cut an arm off. And his disciples are probably like, dude, what are you doing You've got to stop talking like that because we're not going to grow if you talk like that. You want us to grow? Stop telling people to eat your flesh and drink your blood. It doesn't work. Yeah, I can imagine his guys saying that to him. They probably would say, you've got to tell people that if they come to church and they believe they're gonna get home and there'll be a new Mercedes Benz in the driveway. You gotta tell them that life will be a bed of roses. You gotta you gotta tell them they'll get rich or they'll be in control of their life or they'll be climbing the ladder and checking boxes and and life will be easy and they'll be comfortable. You gotta tell them that kind of stuff, Jesus. If you want us to grow, y'all, that's a lie from hell. It it is. And I I want us to look at three this comfort thing. I want us to look at three questions when it comes to what it means to be a Christ follower. Number one is, will we choose comfort or will we choose a cross? Are we going to choose comfort or are we going to choose a cross? First guy says, I'll follow you. Verse 57 says, I'll follow you. Jesus responds, foxes have, have holes and birds there have nests, but I ain't got nowhere to lay my head. This guy that says this is a religious teacher. He's an up-and-coming rabbi. Matthew chapter 8 tells us that. These are guys who are trying to climb the ladder. They're trying to elevate their status. They're trying to, to, to gain in their career, and so here you got this. He wants to be a great rabbi, and so here you got this guy who wants to follow Jesus because he says it. He says, "I'll follow you." He wants to follow Jesus, but he wants to follow him as a means to an end. He wants to follow him as, as a way to climb the ladder up to, a rabbiness. Which is probably not a word. Rabbihood, that's probably not a word either. But you know what I'm saying? He wants to climb this ladder. But but and a lot of times that's the gospel that gets sold to people today. Jesus as a means to an end. We don't come to Jesus to get comfortable. We don't he make he ought to make us squirm a little bit. That's not what it's about. We don't come to Jesus to check a box. We don't come to Jesus for status. We don't come to Jesus to to climb some ladder so people will look at us better or something. When we come to Him, we get Him. He is the end. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. It's not about comfort. It's not about gaining, quote, the good life here in Columbus, Georgia. It's not that. We don't want to promote ourselves. We want Christ. And this guy, here's Jesus to say to this guy. He says, I, look, you come to me. I don't have a roof over my head. I'm homeless. I'm living up under the Dillingham Street Bridge. You come to me, you get me. That's what he says to him. Do Is that the kind of Jesus that we want? So do we want comfort or do we want a cross? Number one. Number two is will we choose business as usual or will we choose mission? Business as usual or the status quo or mission. So the second guy in, in verse 59 Uh, The second guy, Jesus initiates the conversation with, and Jesus says to him, follow me. And the man says, look, uh, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. Oh, my gosh. Think about that. All this dude wants to do is go bury his dad. He just wants to go have a funeral, go bury his dad. He says, I'm going to follow you, but let me go at least bury my father. Is that too much to ask? Is that too much to ask? It just seems cold. Tell the truth. It seems that response seems cold. And this is the Jesus that we're worshiping. And He would say that. Well, what What is He saying in those verses? What is He saying? He is saying that there is a responsibility that supersedes every other responsibility that me and you have, that me and you think we need to do or that we think we ought to do he says this is a responsibility that supersedes every bit of that. That's what he says. And that is, you go proclaim the kingdom of God. He says it's far too important. So Jesus says you're on a mission and nothing gets in the way of the mission. And the church always will. Me and you will always face those, uh, those two options. Business as usual, status quo, whatever you would call that. Versus a thousand percent complete buy-in to proclaiming the gospel. Number two. And number three is this. Will we choose um, a wavering mind? Will we choose a wavering mind or will we choose an obedient heart? This guy says, Lord, let me go back and tell my family goodbye. And Jesus says, nobody who puts his hand to a plow looks back. You know, you know what that means? Literally, it is a, he's just saying, if you're plowing a field, you're looking ahead. You' not Jesus says, "Don't be looking behind you. You didn't you plow that part of it. Look ahead, look ahead, push forward and look ahead. And so Jesus says, "You can't even go say goodbye to your mama. You see the wavering there, the indecision there, and it's indecision, often it is indecision that grips us, because when Jesus tells us to obey, and I can speak from my own experience, often I'll find myself saying, "Well, is it wise? Is it smart?" What, what would Susan say? What, what would Zach say? What would Will say, my two kids? But here's the deal. If Jesus says it, a Christ follower does it. And I'm not saying you go out and be stupid. I'm not saying you go out and make, make dumb decisions. And I'm not saying you don't get on your knees and you pray for the Lord's wisdom in making a decision because you do do that. But indecision grips us. It grips us. And here's what's scary. The implication in these six verses, in these three uh, narratives with these three guys that Jesus is talking to, the implication is they all walked away lost. The implication is that Jesus succeeded in talking them out of following Him. And I, it scares me to think, if I was one of those three, would He have walked away from me and I'm left there with a deer in the headlights look on my face? So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a follower of this Jesus that we're talking about, what does it mean to be uh, to be a Christian? What does Jesus expect from us? What is what did Jesus in Luke chapter nine expect? Everything. What did he expect in Luke chapter fourteen? Everything. So do we believe, and I mean really believe, what this book? What this book? tells us what this book says it means to be a follower of Christ. Number one. Number two bucket is, do we believe what that book says about the lost? Let me be very clear. The lost. People that have not placed saving faith in the Lord. The lost. People that are not Christians. People that have not been saved. People that have not been born again. People that have not accepted grace that is freely given from the Lord. People that are lost. Do we believe what the book says about them? Do we believe that? Do we believe uh, first, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter one. There's 50 other verses. Just look at this, Second Thessalonians chapter one. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction... Does that say they will be punished uh, with five to ten in destruction? No, it says everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. Do we believe that there is a day coming when those that have not trusted in Christ will be punished with everlasting, unending destruction forever outside of the presence of the Lord? Do we believe that? I read a study two years ago probably that, that surveyed professing Christians. Eighty percent of them believed in heaven. Fifty percent of them believed in hell. It's not so that those both those numbers aren't 100%. But 80% believed in heaven. Fifty percent believed in hell. And if we believe in what the Scripture and what Jesus says and the entirety of Scripture what it says about the lost, then that has insanely profound implications for the way we live our lives and the way we operate churches. 7.7 billion people on the planet. Nearly 8 billion people on the planet. Estimates say that uh, a third of the people profess, at least, claim to be Christian. And if all that claim to be Christian are, that leaves 5.1 billion people, with a B, billion people, to include 200,000 in our neck of the woods here in the, the west-central uh, west Georgia-East Alabama area, 200,000, 5.1 billion on the planet, 200,000 in our little area that are on a road that leads to eternal damnation. 200,000 people. If that's true, then, y'all, we can't be jacking around in church. We got to be on the trail. We got to be on the trail. We got to be in hot pursuit of the lost. 200,000 people that we work with and play with and see and we see them at restaurants and they're our friends. Y'all, they're our family. 95% of my family is lost as a goose. It's, it's this is our people. This is our family and our friends. And if that's true, the, the eternal destiny of the lost is at stake. And if that's true, then that changes the way that we live. And if it's not true, then we spend our resources on whatever we want and we indulge ourselves in more stuff. But if it's true, we can't, we can't do that. We've got to be willing to abandon everything we have to get the gospel in front of the lost. So do we believe, do I believe, do you believe, what this book says about the lost? And that leads me to the third bucket. The third bucket is do we believe, really believe, what the text, what the Scripture says about the poor? Here's the facts. Over 3 billion people on the planet live on less than $2.50 a day. For over 3 billion people, what it costs me and you to go across the street and get two large french fries, they don't even have for food and water and shelter and clothes and medical care. Don't have it. The reality is most of us sitting here today, to include myself, most of us have dogs and cats to live on more than $2.5 a day. And for over 3 billion people, they don't even have that. Zoom down to just today. Today, 22,000 children will starve to death. They'll they'll think about what that even means. They will not have enough food to keep them alive. They will die. 22,000 children will die today. Imagine with me for a second if that was taking place here in our little area. What that would mean is that in Muscogee County, that would mean that in the next 24 hours, every child under the age of 17 would be dead from starvation. That is insane. It is insane. But that brings it into our world, at least in our imagination. But here is the, the real deal is this. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to think about it because it's not up in our face we're not even we're we're not even be honest we're not even inconvenienced by that kind of extreme poverty because those who are stricken by it are not only poor they're powerless and we don't have to see them and we don't have to hear from them we we really we don't have to really have anything to do with them literally millions of people are dying in just relative obscurity And we can comfortably ignore them, pretending like they don't even exist. And that sounds cold. That is the way that it is. That is the way it is in in America. Are we, you and me, are we concerned when we're driving down the road that we aren't going to have a place to live or that we're not going to have food or that we're not going to have water? Are we concerned? No, we're not concerned about that because we're on the way to get more stuff. We don't have to think about it because it's not up in our faith. But they do exist. They do. The reality is they exist. And here's what scares me. When I study the Bible, when I really dig into the Scriptures and I study the Bible, I see over and over, I see God measuring the integrity of our faith by our concern for the poor. It's everywhere. Old Testament, New Testament. Psalms, Proverbs. The history book, it's everywhere. Isaiah, in the Prophets, Isaiah 58, he's talking about true fasting. True fasting in Isaiah 58. And he says to, the, to these guys, yeah, you're fasting. You check that little box that says you're fasting so everybody can see how holy you are. You're fasting and you're practicing your religion and you, ignore the, you, and you say you know me and you ignore the poor. You don't know me. That's what he says to them. You're just checking boxes. He says it means fast means nothing if you ignore the poor. That's what he says to his people all over the place. No concern for the poor, no integrity of faith. Those two things are linked together. All over the scriptures, he takes it step after step further. We see it in the book. Jesus tell here's you here's where you're going to have to hang with me till the end of this message. We see all over this book that Jesus tells those with abundance that if they don't feed the hungry and clothe the naked, they're going to hell. If you are in abundance and you don't feed the hungry and clothe the naked, you're going to hell. This is what Jesus teaches. The Jesus that we're worshiping, He teaches that. Stay with me, just stay with me, and don't freak out, and don't take that little snippet out of context. Just keep listening. Old Testament that leads up to these words that Jesus gave us. Proverbs 14, those who oppress the poor insult their Maker. You insult God. Guys, you insult God if you turn a deaf ear to the poor. Proverbs 21, if a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. What is he saying? He says, you shut your ears to the cry of the poor, and you pray, you get nothing. You got nothing. He doesn't even hear you. It's like this true fasting conversation God had in Isaiah 58. You shut your ear to the poor. You gather together every Sunday and you act all holy. God doesn't even hear your words. You're talking to yourselves. That's what He says. Those are strong words. James chapter 5 takes it a step further. He says, you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. And let me fill you in on something. We're all rich. Every one of us. If you're five years old up in here, you're rich. Because you got... Food, and you got water. You probably have a place to live. Rich, rich. And so we're all rich, and the Bible says, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Sound harsh? Tell the truth. Does that sound harsh? It's getting harsher in Matthew 19. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, you can see this picture. Jesus is talking to this guy. His disciples are over here. He's talking to this guy, and he tells that guy that. And then he turns to his disciples, and it's, it's almost like he's pointing to us. He looks at them, and he says, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You catch that? We're all rich, and Jesus says it's hard for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said it's hard for people here myself included it's hard for me to get in heaven very hard matthew 25:40 says whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine you did for me jesus says to those who are hungry to those who don't feed the hungry to those who don't clothe the naked in the very next verse in verse 41 he says depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil And his angels. You don't feed the hungry or clothe the naked. Jesus says, depart from me into eternal fire. And I don't believe that I'm overstating this. Not based on the words of Christ. Follow me. I'm not saying that serving the poor gets you into heaven. I'm not saying that. It certainly does not. We're talking about evidences. Look, there is nothing that you can do to get into heaven. There's no, we bring nothing to the table. I've said this a million times in here. We bring nothing to the table except the sin that made the cross necessary. So don't hear something wrong. That is not what I'm saying. It's evidences of salvation. We're going to dive into this passage in the, in the coming couple of weeks, but let's just suffice it to say this. This passage is not usurping, hijacking the rest of Scripture. It's not. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. You want a snippet? Take that snippet. That's the snippet to walk away with. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that from the entirety of Scripture beyond a doubt. But if you'll spend some time in 1 John, or you spend some time in Galatians chapter 5, or in other, all over the Scriptures and you're, we look at the assurance of salvation and we look at fruit, the Christ's fruit in our lives, if the love of Christ, I'm fixing to get controversial again, so bear with me, if, if, if the love of Christ is not in someone, then there's reason to question whether Christ is in there. If there is no fruit, if there's no outward manifestation of a changed heart in someone's life, there is reason to question whether or not Christ is in there. If someone is walking in persistent, consistent, willful, disobedient sin, there is reason to question whether Christ is in there. If you were to come up to me today after church, get me up in a corner, and you were living in willful, persistent, consistent, disobedient sin, shaking your hand at God saying, I can live however I want because I walked the aisle five years ago, and I'm a Christian, and you're living that way, I would have to say based on, I believe, the authority of the entirety of Scripture that I don't know whether you're saved or not. And it's certainly not my place to determine that. What I would say to somebody that that conversation took place is you need to to search yourself. You need to look in the mirror. You need to question whether you need to question whether or not Christ is in there. Now that's tough, y'all. But that is biblical. It's biblical. You know, 200 years ago, which is in the scheme of things is not long, 200 years ago you had people preaching the gospel of Christ and they owned slaves. Those two kind of don't go together. They're preaching the gospel and they own slaves. And we look back at that and we say, how could you people have owned slaves, beat slaves with whips, and professed to be a believer in Jesus Christ? It's nonsensical those two things don't go together. We would all say that. And I wonder if 200 years from now, people are going to, if Jesus hadn't come back yet, they could look back on us and say, how can y'all say that you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you live with so much stuff? How could they, they would say, how could they know the gospel and live in such absurd excess And this is something that the Lord has really been opening my eyes up to uh, of late and my heart up to. And I don't really know, honestly, what all that means. But but I know that somehow it is time to investigate, really investigate and embrace the demands that the gospel makes. And so, well, okay, Ed, what does that even mean? And I'm not sure what that means. I'm, I'm really not sure what that means for me and my family. I'm not 100% positive. We're on a journey trying to figure that out. So I would not profess to know what that means for you and your family, nor maybe even what that exactly means for our church. But I know that I want all of us together to take January and investigate and listen to the words of Christ. The Christ that we claim to praise, that, that we claim to believe, that we claim to follow, Listen to His words. And these are words that get ignored all the time, y'all. But I want us to listen to them. And I want us to consider together what those words mean in action. When a foot goes in front of the other foot. What do those words mean in action? And I don't think that, that, that we can even begin to think through what that looks like for us as a church until we answer those three questions. What does it mean to follow Christ and His freakish demands? What does it mean to live freakishly for the lost? We should be weeping for the lost. If we really believe the Scripture, everybody in this room has a friend or somebody in their family that is lost who could get run over by a bus today. It could happen. It could happen. And they spend eternity in torment. If you really believe that, you cannot be the same as you were when you were on the other side of that belief. We can't as a church be like that. And so what does it mean to live freakishly for the lost and free, what does it mean to live freakishly for the poor if what the book is saying is true? And here's the deal too. The reality is some of you may be saying, and I've got to be careful about the way I say this, you may be saying I can live my Christian life without taking that journey. Count me out. I don't want to do that. And that's an option. And I would beg you not to go there. I would beg you to consider this for the next month or so, and think about it. But some of you may. And look, Jesus would go around and make lots of demands, lots of freakish demands, and part of the crowds would leave. Part of the crowds would leave. We can do that. I want to lead this church in another way, not that way. I want to lead this church in 100% truth in that Scripture, 100% truth in what God tells us to do. I love this church. I love Jesus. That's why I want to lead that way. And yes, His gospel makes crazy freakish demands. And we don't have to embrace them. We could choose not to. Don't you know that we were born with a chooser? I don't know where it is in there. We were all born with a chooser and we get to choose. And we could choose not to embrace that. We could. We could just embrace what the world says. And by the world's standards, by the world's yardstick, we very well may be more successful by the world's yardstick. I don't care about the world. I care about the Lord. I care about reaching the lost in the world, but I'm not going to let the world's uh, wants and needs dictate leading our church. But we could go the way of the world. I just don't want us to. And I hope that y'all will embrace this, and we wouldn't. And so I want to invite you to just at a minimum spend January investigating the truth claims that the Scripture makes. Investigate the demands that the Gospel makes and hopefully embracing those. And look, I think that the, the whole purpose or at least part of the purpose of this is to get us to our knees. Is to get us to our knees in prayer before Christ and beg Him to show us what it looks like because He's the goal. Look, the goal is not the lost. The goal is not the poor. The goal is Jesus. We want Him. We want Him to drive what we do. We want Him to be the focus of our church. We want Him to be the focus of our lives, of our families' lives. And when He is the focus, anything that seems like sacrifice is not really sacrifice in light of the One who died on that cross, in light of the One who rose from the grave. In light of the one who ascended to the Father and made eternal life freely an option for us. Anything that seems like sacrifice, in light of that is not sacrifice. So let us fix our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our spirits and our souls on Him. In prayer and just say, Christ, I want you to be the center of it all. I want you to be the focus of everything we do. I want you more than anything else. And so we pray, God, let us be a church that is in hot pursuit of you. Because you are the one that deserves all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. And here's the deal. I want to ask, I I, I would ask you, anybody that is here, I would ask you this. If you don't know this Jesus that we just talked about for 35 minutes... This Jesus that willingly died on that cross. This Jesus that willingly died on that cross to, to buy you back. Grace is not cheap. It was a costly thing that happened on that cross. A costly exchange that happened on that cross. The exchange of His righteousness for our sin. That's the best exchange ever. Do y'all understand that? That is the best deal ever. Ever. That exchange that happened on that cross. And so if you don't know that Jesus that did that on that cross, bought us back. If you don't know Him, I invite you to accept His invitation today. Today. Accept that invitation. It's free to us. Oh my gosh. It's free to us. And enter into a saving relationship with Him. He will change the way that you walk through life. You can walk through life With joy where there used to be despair. Y'all do understand that joy is not bound by time or circumstance. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is dependent on my circumstance. Happiness is going to ebb and flow through life. Happiness, sadness. Joy is not bound by circumstance. That exchange replaces despair with joy. He will replace darkness with light. He'll replace fear with peace. A peace that throughout the Scripture says it defies explanation. Well, the cross explains it. He'll replace that fear with peace. He will, on this side of salvation, there's fruit. It's what we've been talking about for 35 minutes. Fruit. At first, it may be raisins, shriveled up little bitty raisins, but they're on the way to being watermelons. They're growing. You cannot, there's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. If there is no fruit, the odds are there is no Christian. But it may be a little bitty fruit. You may need a magnifying lens or microscope to see it. But there'll be some fruit. And that fruit's going to grow as we mature. All of us, as we mature together, the fruit grows into big, huge, 600-pound watermelons. But here, and, and so what does it take for that? All it takes, costly The cross costly. The gospel uncomplicated though. Very simple. All it takes is we repent and we believe. We repent and we believe. What do we repent of? We repent and we confess our sins before God. We repent and we believe. What do we believe? We believe the gospel. We believe that that exchange on that cross happened for me. It happened to buy my sins. It happened to purchase me and my life back. That's all it is. Repent and believe. And so I would say, if that happened to you today, I want you to... to and I hope it did. I, I mean, I, look. I said it earlier. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. The gospel's getting preached every Sunday here. It is all about Christ. It is not about anything else other than Him. And so that Gospel... It just never returns void. We are on a mission together to reach the lost. That is what we do. That is Christ's last words. Last words are lasting words. The Great Commission at the end of Matthew, what does He tell us to do? Go make disciples. Go make disciples. You can't be a disciple and not be a believer. That is what we do. And so I, I'm, I, if that happened to you today, if you went from lost to found, I want you to pray this with me. And you, it, there's nothing magical about this prayer. There's not, nothing magical about it at all. But I want you all, everybody in, our room, in this room, just clear, if you'll close your eyes and bow your heads, and you can say it to yourself, you can scream it to the mountains, you can come down here, you can stay in your seat, whatever. But Lord, today is the day. Today is the day, today's the first day of my life having been reborn. Today is the first day having made you be my leader and my forgiver. Lord, I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. And I believe that your death on that cross bought me back and is going to provide me with an eternity with you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.